Hello and welcome to PNN Progressive News Network for Sunday, March 7, 2021. Uh, wow, we had so much stuff this week. We've got to do two-parter. So this is um, this is part two or part one. It, dep- it just depends on whenever you read whatever one. This is they're they're equal. Um, and not opposite, but we've got in, in this, uh, in this episode right here, we've got Cardick Krishnayer and myself talking about whether or not we think Christian cinema is, uh, lacking discipline, showing a lack of discipline in the Senate, or is she showing that she actually has discipline? In other words, what do you think? The outcome is that Joe Biden actually wanted on a minimum wage. What do you think? That's what Cardick and I discuss. Then I've got Chris Richards, the eclectic radical, who has a new uh, YouTube channel and uh, is, uh, you know, doing all kinds of great things on Twitter, too. Um, I've got a, a, a chat with him because I was going to I I. I don't know what libertarian socialism is and I needed someone to help me out and uh, set me straight on that so that I could understand it a little bit better. And now it makes total sense. Uh, so let's just get right to it. You know, let, let's just skip all of the uh, skip all of the BS and we are just going to jump right in. You know, I, I don't want to jump in with that. Hold on. We're going to jump in with something else. Oh, let's jump in with this. This is better. And we're here with Card at Chris and I are to talk about all things having to do with Florida and some national politics. I've been watching stuff go on in your Twitter feed this week, Cardick, and uh, uh, I just wanted to get your uh, thoughts on this party discipline problem that there seems to be having right now in the Senate with, uh, what was it, eight uh Eight white senators all decided that, you know, it, it with various flourishes like uh, Kirsten Cinema, uh, thumbs down that, that they uh, were going to reject $15 minimum wage, which everyone has been running on now since forever. So what do you what do you think about this party discipline thing? Yeah, it, it, it's really quite stunning when you consider there are four times as many. Uh, members of the of the Democratic Caucus, more than four times as many members of the Democratic Caucus in the in the U.S. House, right? Two hundred twenty one or two hundred twenty two Democrats in the U.S. House, fifty senators. Uh, that uh, Nancy Pelosi, who I criticize a lot, but Nancy Pelosi held her caucus together on this fifteen dollar minimum wage, lost two votes out of her two hundred twenty two, and I think there was someone who didn't vote or someone who was who was absent, so it was two nineteen the final vote. But right, she lost two Democrats. And in the Senate, somehow Chuck Schumer loses, I don't know what the number was, seven, eight, nine, whatever it was, uh, uh, Democrats. I guess we could count the members and figure it out. But And, and um, so you had a lot of – you had a, a few Democrats who were in Trump districts that walked the plank in the House. Uh, and they didn't really walk the plank because this is popular among Republican voters too, as the polling shows and as we learned in Florida 
When Trump gets uh, 51% of the vote in Florida, minimum wage gets 60%. $15 minimum wage gets 60%. So there's mm-hmm. some overlap. Yet every single senator, I believe, Democratic senator, with the exception of Joe Manchin, that voted um, for this, uh, voted no on the minimum wage came from a state which, uh, which Joe Biden carried in November. Uh, well, yeah. Well, not, Hank, not, not Tester, right? Tester, obviously, Montana is an exception, too. But so, with the exception of Manchin and Tester, right? You have Coons, you have the, the New Hampshire senators, where Biden, by the way, increased Hillary Clinton's margin by about six points, right? He did really well in New Hampshire compared to 2016, where Clinton almost lost the state. Uh, Maggie Hassan was elected in 2016 by that narrow margin. Maggie Hassan uh, was elected by a much narrower margin than Joe Biden won the state in 2020. Uh, Gene Shaheen voted uh, to, to against the minimum wage increase. Biden, uh, I think, carried the state by a bigger margin than Shaheen did when she first uh, 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 got elected to the U.S. Senate. So that that's the other thing. I mean, they're saying, well, we're moderate states, we're moderate voters. Biden actually got more votes uh, than uh, Biden. Biden won Arizona, I guess, by a, a slightly smaller margin than cinema. But Mark Kelly, who carried the state by a bigger margin than Biden or cinema, voted for the minimum wage increase. Or, or, uh, so uh, I think there's a lot of disingenuous uh, stuff going on. And the, the overall point is that Chuck Schumer doesn't seem to be able to control his caucus. Right. I mean, to, and then to have Kirsten Cinema do what she did, the theatrics uh, was embarrassing. And I would hope that she gets disciplined within the caucus, although I'm not holding my breath on that. Well, I think. OK, so so I. I think that there's an alternative uh, way of looking at this that, you, you, you know, like, like, let's just try this on for size. Uh, think back to uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson's uh, tenure, you know, like when when he was yeah. president and how he would uh, get what he wanted. You know, he went out there and and made sure that the senators and the and the and the people in Congress got in line. Like like, you know, he he pressured them, you know, he got in their face and he got what he wanted because he was the fucking president. And to me. When I look at this list of people and I see both senators from Delaware voting this down, what I see is potentially Biden actually getting what he wanted. You know, I think that this would not happen if Biden and and Harris both, you know, at at the executive level, they are saying, you know, let's give lip service to $15 minimum wage. Let's give lip service to all this stuff that gets us elected. But really, our donors are not that into it. And so we're going to make sure that our donors are happy. What do you think of that? Yeah. Yeah. And also, maybe they just think electorally they have it as an issue in 2022. Now, I, I don't know where Harris is on the minimum wage. I mean, she, she's given lip service. I think Biden historically has voted for minimum wage increases and, and uh, uh, voted for bigger minimum wage increases that were on all things. So uh, in the Senate, right, as a senator. Now, as we talked about before, the Biden in the Senate was more liberal than the Biden that was vice president to the conservative, uh, well, not conservative, sorry, uh, to the to the neoliberal Barack Obama. Um, so maybe he's he's drifted to the middle, but he, he typically always supported minimum wage increases, which is why it's kind of stunning to see his Delaware colleagues um, buck him on this. But maybe he thought he had lost cinema and uh, mansion anyway and wasn't going to apply the pressure because it seemed like um, the, the 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 Lyndon Johnson approach, Lyndon Johnson's approach with both the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and 
to a lesser extent with Medicare was, I'm sending the bills up and you vote for the bills. Uh, and I remember even a line from one of the, the documentaries on D- Johnson where, where uh, uh, Everett Dirksen, who was the Republican leader, was saying, I need this amendment, I need that amendment, and Johnson's listening. And, and Dirksen and Johnson had a great relationship because Johnson had been the majority leader, Dirksen the minority leader in the Senate previously. And Johnson would take those amendments when he was a senator. And he finally said, Everett, no can do. The bill is the bill. It remains as is. And um, had to break a filibuster and all that stuff to, to get through this. Biden, uh, I think, applied pressure in the House, which is prob- probably helped Pelosi out, um, but then refused to apply pressure in the Senate to get Manchin, uh, at, where West Virginia is a state that would benefit from this, okay? Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, as a matter of I, fact, I, uh, Reverend William Barber points out that 62 million low and income, poor and low income people who were poor and low income before the pandemic got abandoned. And he points out that this includes millions of poor and low income people from Appalachia and rural America. You know, these are mansions people. Uh, and on the Friday before the 56th anniversary of Bloody Sunday, 45% of black workers were denied $15 minimum wage. Yeah, and that, 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 that's really um, horrific. And Bloody Sunday, of course, motivated Lyndon Johnson, who had kind of been sitting on the Voting Rights Act, to... Uh, to, 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 pu- to push that. And uh, Re- Reverend Barber's had a great impact in North Carolina, by the way. We talked about that another time. A lot I actually, of in North Carolina. I actually talked to him uh, about North Carolina, specifically about Asheville and Western North Carolina, because that's what I'm familiar with. And I, I saw him speak and at a progressive caucus thing and then ran, ran into him in the airport and you know his story about going to Asheville is is pretty uh, amazing because he was not expecting the mountains to be responsive to him, and he got an amazing response from from the mountain region. Which which I said, you know what, I would have expected that because the mountains, I think, are a different kind of political personality than the Piedmont. A, a way different personality. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot more identification with worker issues in, in the mountains. People, and it doesn't matter if they're Republicans or Democrats, they identify as as workers. So let's extrapolate that to West Virginia. Mm-hmm. Because Appalachia, there's a lot of common traits between uh, uh, Western, uh, Eastern Tennessee, Western North Carolina, Western Virginia, uh, Western state of Virginia, and then West Virginia and parts of Pennsylvania. Um, and, and so Manchin, I think pressure could have been applied. I, I, I don't know why Biden. Uh, uh, so this is what's really odd about Biden's approach. Biden has made a decision to his credit that he doesn't want to go down the same road as Obama watering down legislation because he feels like that cost the Democrats badly in the midterms in, in 2010. Mm-hmm. However, not watering down legislation and letting it get voted down as a, uh, uh, as a consequence mm-hmm. might have the same impact in 2022 that Obama's compromising did in 2010. It may look no different. And in fact, legislatively, it looks no different because instead of, instead of um, Obama saying, okay, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll cave into the conservative Democrats on this and pull the legislation, Biden didn't, didn't compromise, but then he lost the vote on the Senate floor. Mm-hmm. So it has the same impact, and it didn't pass, and so 2022 could be like 2010. So 
I, I give Biden credit in that he he wants to go big or go home because he feels like, uh, and, and I would say, I guess, the same thing about the 94 election, but more recently 2010 for the Democrats, where there was this uh, this 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 disastrous uh, effect for the de- from the Democrats compromising. The failure to pressure and then the unwillingness to compromise gives you the same result. Those people vote no. And it's actually maybe a worse result, you could argue, because Obama didn't lose a floor vote um, that first year, right? They would water down the legislation and make it like Republican light legislation. Instead, Biden uh, uh, said, I'm not compromising on it. You're going to vote on the package as is, like Lyndon Johnson. But unlike Johnson, who said, you know what? That's fine. If you uh, if you don't want to vote with me, you won't have paved roads in the state of Nebraska, right? Or right. Using that as an example. Yeah, Biden didn't do any of that. Right. So instead, he loses on the floor, gets humiliated by this this uh, caddy senator Cinema, who who sticks her, her thumbs up. And I have to tell you, Cinema is a, an extreme disappointment. I don't want to spend our, our show talking about her uh, other than this, but she was a Green Party member. She wasn't even a Democrat when she first ran for for. The, uh, Arizona legislature was a was a was a uh, a, a, a far left person who then gradually has drifted right. Was further, you know, was more than like of a a a, a, a progressive Democrat when she got elected to the U.S. House. So she went from green to progressive Democrat. That's already moved to the right, and then progressive Democrat to uh, to neoliberal Democrat when she got elected to the Senate, and now in the Senate has gone from neoliberal Democrat. To conservative Democrat, mm-hmm. like the old Pinto Democrats they used to have in in, in uh, uh, Arizona, who I would not describe as uh, as neoliberal Democrats. I'd conser- describe them as like uh, uh, Arizona version of Southern Democrats, of, of bowl weevils. As, as I uh, people got fascinated this week when I used the term bowl weevil to describe Demo- old conservative Democrats from cotton. Uh, producing states. <laughs> they didn't even think that that was like a term that people don't use anymore. But yeah, so cinema is, I think, a disgrace. And she's uh, she's uh, showed up and embarrassed the president of the United States. Uh, and can you imagine if this was a Republican who behaved like that on the floor and there was a Republican president, what would have happened to, to that to that senator? Instead, she's, you know, she, 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 she's yucking it up now and, 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 and uh, enjoying the, uh, the spotlight it gave her. I think that what she did is very similar in in tone to what uh, John McCain did with uh, his thumbs down Which on one? yeah uh, to to Trump, and uh, and and I think that it's really hard not to make that connection, especially since she's you know from Arizona, you know, like like that's. That particular uh, thumbs down, you know, with the little curtsy uh, was um, I I know that the people who were responding to it on social media were saying, yeah, she's telling us to fuck off. But uh, I think that the more pointed way of interpreting that is that she was telling Biden to fuck off. Now, she wasn't telling Biden to fuck off. If that wasn't pointed at Biden, if she had the go ahead of someone in a back room told her, you know, this is the negotiation and we actually want, you know, some of these senators to to vote this down. You know, if she was doing that by, you know, by uh, carrying water you know, instead of being out of line, then that's a whole other issue. That's it. it, 
to me, she just had so much uh, confidence and arrogance in her body language and what she was doing and the way she turned on her heels, you know, with their with her bag, like she was going to go jump on a plane or go shopping or something. It just seemed to me like like she had been pumped up. She knew what she was doing and she was she was carrying water. You know, it, 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 it was just remarkable. Yeah, and, and so uh, whether she had the tacit approval to do something like that or not, whether it, it will, it does embarrass Joe Biden. So even if Biden thinks, ah, it's not a big deal, it, 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 the public perception of it is terrible. And it shows that the Democrats uh, can't control their caucus, right? They can't even control how their members express themselves. And then on top of that, you had uh, Joe Manchin throughout the night holding the rest of the Democratic caucus and the president and the vice president and millions and millions of Americans hostage, mm-hmm. okay? These are theatrics, right? And I don't understand why this keeps happening with the Democrats, but doesn't happen with the Republicans. Yes, McCain did that on the Obamacare vote. That was a very rare exception. 1993, we talked about this on the show before, so I don't want to rehash it, Brooke. This happened with Bill Clinton. Like anything he proposed, there would be these Democrats who are looking for attention and trying to appear more moderate or conservative to their constituents than maybe they really were, who then were like, oh, I don't like this BTU tax. I don't like this this deficit reduction thing. I don't like this tax increase on tobacco. And would, would complain to where well, it, things would get watered down or they'd get killed. And then the same thing happened with Obama uh, and Pelosi in 2009 to where Pelosi had to effectively tell pro-choice uh, uh, feminist members of the House, which of, of which she was one, she's the leader of, or had been the leader of, to, 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 to F off because of uh, 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 this provision that they'd have put in to get some votes from some Southern Democrats, right, and some mm-hmm. Democrats from rural areas. So uh, it, this is constantly going on with the Democratic Party when we're in control, we're in power. Uh, I get Biden's thinking that you don't compromise um, and you go big. I agree with that, actually, but then it doesn't work without pressure because then what happens is you lose floor votes. Two, uh, I'm saying it's like 93 and 2009, but we never lost the floor vote those times. We would just pull things or or water down things and accept amendments. This time we didn't do that, and we got beat on the floor. It was pretty, pretty humiliating, really. And there hasn't been a statement either. You know, everyone's been been quiet since then. Tell our tell our listeners too, like what, where is the bill now, and what happens next? It goes back to the House, and is it is it marked up again, or is it just voted on? I think that the House will have to take the Senate version of of uh, reconciliation, and then uh, um, and then it goes through uh, the Senate again. Oh no, no, it won't have to go through the Senate again if uh, they take that version. Reconciliation is a uh, is 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 a tactic that. Um, allows you to, uh, to, 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 to effectively also prevent amendments from being added on the floor. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is, uh, th- th- this is something where I think Pelosi's skill in keeping her caucus together will be, uh, will be very useful because there might be some people grumbling now. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think ultimately for progressives – you have to go ahead and bite the bullet and, and vote this vote for this new bill without uh, the the $15. But they're all on the record as having voted for it in the House. Now, I actually was really uh, disappointed by the Republicans I, uh, before we move on from this topic. Mm-hmm. I thought that there would be some Republicans 
that would cross over and vote for a minimum wage increase in the in the House. In the Senate, I had no expectations. Right, uh, we already saw how the Senate Republicans behaved during the, uh, uh, or, or the bulk of them behaved during the uh, the trial of Trump. Um, but in the House, I held out some hope that there might be some moderates, some newly elected Republicans from districts Biden carried, uh, some people like uh, Nancy Mace of South Carolina, who's emerged as kind of a star already uh, in, in, a, in a district that uh, she beat Joe Cunningham, who was an incumbent Democrat, 5149, a district in South Carolina where actually Biden did pretty well and uh, Jamie Harrison did pretty well. I was hoping some of those people um, would vote. Uh, uh, for a minimum wage increase, or the, the Republicans picked up four seats in California uh, in November, and, but none of them did. So that really surprised me. So I thought the Republican Party was making a play for working class voters. I know I've said that over and over again, and that we are beginning to see maybe the Republicans embrace some more progressive positions on the econo- on economics. And I've even said to some people, I think I've said it to you privately, hey, maybe the Democrats were becoming the conservatives and the Republicans the the, the progressives when it comes to economics. But that. This vote, I think, uh, ends that conversation for now because uh, every single Republican in Congress voted against a minimum wage increase. And so this is a huge missed opportunity for the Democrats because if they had stuck together and they had kept the minimum wage in there, they would have that issue. They could they could legitimately point to the to the Republicans and say that they are anti-worker and cleave off all of those, you know, low income and 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 poorer people who have drifted off either become apathetic and not voted or you know drifted off to trumperville and 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 pull people back into rationality and now we've lost the ability to do that it is it's heartbreaking you know first of all that that you know, people are are, are so-called essential workers are now being told that they're completely disposable and you know just screw you but it's also heartbreaking to see the party shoot itself in the foot so bad and so thoroughly um but but let's let's turn from that because i mean there's plenty of opportunity to talk about how the party shoots itself in the foot um it, it let's turn to florida for example and you wrote a piece that, that I think is really interesting about Charlie Crist and is in defense of Charlie Crist. Uh, and, and, you know, we have the situation in Florida with DeSantis being the heir apparent to, to Donald Trump. And we have all of these pressures that that we were just talking about with low income people and and very, very rich people, you know, heightened inequality that is evident in Florida. And uh, Charlie Crist was was governor and uh, a different kind of governor. He was Republican, then then a Democrat, ran as a Democrat, lost uh, against uh, Rick Scott. And, And now there's DeSantis who could become the next Trump. And so it's extra important to take him down. Now, who's the right person to do that? Do you think it's Charlie Crist or or what's what's going on here? Yeah, so I would prefer uh, at the outset, and, and I've actually had a lot of conversations with progressives the last few days since I wrote that article who surprisingly agreed with me. Um, I, uh, I would prefer to be a progressive. I prefer someone like Anna Eskamani run for governor or, or uh, someone of that ilk, uh, 
Uh, that's just one name. That's not the only person, but that's the one that comes to mind. Um, but I would like someone like Anna to run. But if it isn't her and it comes down to Nikki Freed versus Charlie Crist, which is apparently where we're headed, mm-hmm. to me, that's no contest. I mean, I think Nikki Freed is the embodiment of what has happened to the Democratic Party in this state. She is a professional lobbyist. She is someone who is cozied up with the ag agribusiness industry. She's cozied up with the sugar companies. She is someone who, to me, is very vain in how she presents herself. She's very much into the politics of identity, and she's very much into the politics of just critiquing um, the Republicans without giving any kind of substantive thing that makes her different. Now, uh, other than identity. And she is... Uh, obviously big on the, 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 the marijuana legalization issue, which I think is important and I agree with her on. Uh, I, I, I do think, though, that that, uh, that that positive, the negatives completely outweigh that. And so what we have now is in the Democratic Party in Florida is a party that has effectively uh, been filled with uh, p- people who, uh, who, who, who run as candidates, uh, run ca- candidate campaigns, during the fall, but are professional lobbyists the rest of the year, or they're um, public affairs consultants. You know, they have all these different job titles that mm-hmm. tie them to the status quo and tie them to the Republican legislature. And so Nikki Fried is of that ilk. Now, I'm not saying Charlie Crist is, is the greatest thing since sliced bread, but I, I, I've noticed the degree of independence that's grown. You know, maybe some uh, – look, you you can't underestimate the zeal of a convert, right? That's also the thing. Um, A a Republican who was uh, elected three times statewide as a Republican but gradually drifted to the the left while he was in office. And and I I point out in the article, and I pointed this out to a lot of people privately, the drift really to me took place when he was attorney general. And I was connected to the office at the time. Uh, or was uh, you know had a lot of friends uh, in and around the legal profession and, and the attorney general's office. So I kind of know what happened uh, and how Krista effectively began to defer to his uh, attorneys in the prosecutor's office and in the attorney general's office, which were more liberal people, and how that kind of changed his ideology and changed his outlook as he became governor. Can you keep in mind, as governor, he took on the insurance companies in the state, which is not something – um, anyone else has done in the last uh, 25 years in the state. So really took on the insurance companies. They hated them. I can tell you that from, from firsthand experience. I, I think we were just talking about this at, at the House. What was it, me and Jay? Uh, tell me a, a little bit about that, how he took on the insurance companies, because that's really important history here. Yeah, so we had a, a crisis of, of, of hurricanes in this state in 2004 and 2005, and we had um, a situation where Jeb Bush was very cozy with the insurance industry. He was the governor at the time. Uh, Chris started making noises as attorney general uh, in 2005 that he was going to investigate these homeowners insurance companies and flood insurance and all of that uh, with, as the attorney general, which really angered Bush and Bush's people. Uh, this followed up on Charlie Chris deciding that he was going to investigate the oil companies for price gouging in Florida before that. Uh, which really pissed Bush off also, as you can imagine, for obvious reasons. So um, those of you who don't know, who might be a little young, I went around the years, the Bush family is very connected to the energy industry (laughs) in Texas, right, if you don't know that. So um, Chris is already drifting left and and, and doing these things. And now maybe he was doing a lot of it for show, but he, 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 he wanted to investigate the insurance industry. Then he becomes governor, and right away he's pushing this, uh, he's pushing insurance reform, uh, being blocked by the Speaker of the House, who was Marco Rubio, and the Senate President, who I think was 
Maybe Jeff, no, no, I think it might have been Ken Pruitt at the time, although I think Pruitt was kind of uh, shaky on it and, you know, was kind of halfway on it. So he actually goes to uh, Dan Gelber, who was a Democratic leader in the House um, and who stayed, remained co- connected to Chris, and I think helped, you know, convince Chris to switch parties. Gelber, I think, is one of the, the key figures in that. And, uh, and, and Steve Geller, who was the Democratic leader in the Senate, and they pushed a real comprehensive insurance reform uh, package. Uh, that gets through with some Republican support, the Mike Fasanos, the Paula Dockeries, the kind of moderate Republicans that are no longer in the uh, in, in that body. And sorry, the pressure they put on, wasn't it that like State Farm wanted to n- just leave the state yeah. entirely and they were like, OK, you can't write auto insurance. Right, yeah. So so what Chris was saying is, OK. You, you can leave the, leave the state because you, you, you don't, you're concerned about homeowner's insurance. You can't write auto insurance. You can't write any other sort, sort of insurance in the state. You're out of Florida. and all state, it was the same thing. Good, good. You leave the state. You're not, you're not able to do insurance here. So that was, that was step one. Step two, which he wasn't able to complete, was that he was going to uh, – he, he made a, a lot of noise about pushing changes to the liability insurance uh, claims in this state and workers' comp which uh, uh, scared the heck out of people, right, in, in, in the corporate world. Uh, and uh, uh, probably that threat, I think, led pretty directly to Marco Rubio then primarying him uh, in, in 2010 and then Chris eventually switching parties, right, because he couldn't beat Rubio in a primary, which is, uh, which is the, the trigger on when he left the Republican Party. But mm-hmm. um, that, that, uh, that threat to op- reopen the workers' comp uh, situation in Florida pushed them, uh, really kind of pushed the corporations because they, they, they've made this state a mockery on workers' comp laws, product liability laws, any sort of torts, uh, a- anything having to do with, uh, even securities litigation law is really, uh, weak in this state, which might be why all these hedge fund managers and stockbrokers are, are, are wanting to move to Florida. And Governor DeSantis is, is, uh, got an active campaign to get these people to leave New York and move to Miami. Uh, as we speak. Now, the latest I heard on that, Brooke, just as an aside, is that DeSantis is going to expand his effort to get um, the financial services industry, elements of that, to relocate from New York to Miami, which I think is also, uh, if you're a working class Floridian, is, is really alarming and scary. And and it should be. And what's what's sort of going on there, too, is it, it, people who aren't familiar with South Florida, uh, <clears throat> If you're not kind of standing on Brickell Avenue, it's, it's kind of hard to imagine this. But Miami is a financial services center, a banking center for Central and South America. Like, yes. like it, it is just it. It's a by bringing other financial services down into this area. What I think is essentially happening is a, a, a it's a it's a new affirmation of the importance of Central and South America in our financial portfolio. Uh, but but that also is a bad thing, you know, would, would be a bad thing in terms of catering to those interests instead of workers' interests, which is why I think when when you bring Chris up in this in this way and put him up against uh, Nikki Freed, you know, and imagine the same scenario of a Charlie Christen office versus a DeSantis versus a Nikki Freed. 
it's a much different scenario. You've either got lobbyists running things from the from, from the center right or the far right, or you have Charlie Crist, who at least has somewhat of a uh, a history of fighting back against the lobbyists. Yeah, and then I think also uh, I have to get into the sugar issue here. So you've got a situation where in 2014, Charlie Crist has a primary opponent, uh, Nan Rich, who was a very liberal Democrat. I like her a lot. I'm a big fan of hers. actually voted for her in the primary. However, there was a shady group that was behind Nan Rich propping up her in the primary called Progressive Choice that uh, just attacked Charlie Crist. Now, what we've subsequently found out um, is that that company, that, that, that entity was funded by Sugar because they didn't want Chris to be governor again, right? Sugar was, uh, they were with Rick Scott. This time, I think they actually would have even more of an incentive to try and take Chris out in a primary if it is a Chris versus Free primary because believe it or not, and those of you listening may not believe this, but it's true, unfortunately, from a perspective of an environmentalist in South Florida like me, uh, DeSantis is better on that issue than Nikki Freitas. She has tied herself since she's become ag commissioner. Well, and, and you know, she was a lobbyist before, so it's natural uh, to the agribusiness industry, to the citrus industry and to the sugar companies. So they have a lot of incentive to get her elected. Uh, a point on the point you made on Brickell Avenue. Uh, you're absolutely right, Brooke. And, and it skews perceptions because I just have this 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 experience of uh, uh, for two years, from uh, late 2017 to late 2019, I worked. Uh, uh, I was uh, the VP of communications, uh, eventually the VP of communications for for Miami FC, as uh, a professional soccer team. We had our office in the financial district. We had our office on Brickell Bay Drive, which is a block over from Brickell. We were in the Aeon, the Aeon building. So all the buildings are Barclays, uh, whatever you know. What, what Banco Banks Santander, HSBC, right? These are all the these are the buildings in in Brickell. Um, being in Brickell even clouded our ability to relate to our fans, our staff's ability to sell tickets and relate to our fan base because it is so different when you're in like the financial district of a major banking center. And this is part of the problem with the Democratic Party now. If the Democratic Party is hanging around bankers and people in the financial services industry, I saw it firsthand in the, with the soccer team. You know, you can't relate to the guy, guy in Doral or in Pembroke Pines you need to sell tickets to because you're spending your entire day nine to, not nine to six around these, these bankers and these elites and these people who are flying to London every week and flying to Milan every week and flying to Buenos Aires every week. I mean, it, it was really revealing to me, even just from a political perspective being stuck on Brickle to the point where towards the end of my tenure there, I was begging our owners who are, you know, big, big, big high rollers from London. Uh, so they're comfortable with that. And their office is in Mayfair in London. So that might, if you know London, that, <laughs> might, that might tell you something. Uh, hey, just move us to a storefront somewhere else. I mean, my people from, even from a comms perspective, we can't, it, it's very difficult when we're sitting uh, around all these bankers and, you know, the, uh, the Argentine consulate is across the street, the British consulates in the same building as us. You know, it's all these, these, these heavy, uh, these, these high rollers. So, um, yeah, it's a very personal issue for me because I think I didn't, I, I'm not a fan of, never been a fan of the banking industry or the financial services industry, but I really saw how it can warp perceptions. If you have a bunch of young people who are not really ideological I mean, they're probably mostly liberal. They're all liberal on social issues that are working in a non-political industry but are in that financial district. 
Yeah. It's it's a corrupting thing. It is very corrupting, and and there's something about the uh, the urban design too, where, where if you're in the uh, central business district, if you're in Brickell, if you're in the financial district, uh, people can't really get in, and you really can't get out. Like it is, right. it is a closed system, and it's actually totally. that way in every city uh, in Florida. Totally, which was my point was that you can't sell. How are we selling tickets when no one can mm-hmm. actually come to our office because yep. we're in this we're uh, this skyscraper and no one's going to pay for parking? Parking is twenty seven dollars an hour. It wasn't. I think it was nine dollars an hour, but whatever. It was it was like twenty seven dollars for three hours um, in our building. I mean, who who's going to come visit you? Wow. And it has this very corrupting bubble effect, um, which you know I, I would uh, I would encourage our people to just get on the metro rail and get out of the area, even when they're at, at the office, uh, just to kind of kind of mix with other folks during the day because you know whatever they're doing on the weekend is fine, and because it was a soccer team, oftentimes the weekends you were working with the team, so. During the week, they were – and because all, all these young people like to live close to their offices, they were all moving to apartment uh, condos in Brickell and apartments. And they were in this kind of jet set, phony jet set lifestyle without any kind of real grounding of, of, of reality. Yeah, and people can't come in and come out. That's, that's a huge thing. And I think uh, that's – Brickell is an extreme example, and Brickell is like New York, but um, – I, I think other cities in Florida are pretty similar, honestly. They just have it on a, on a smaller scale than Miami does. So back to Charlie Chris, too, on uh, uh, on this, on, on your article here. And this is, for people listening, this is in the Florida Squeeze, and it's called In Defense of Charlie Crist, uh, published on March the 3rd. Uh, you say, uh, my view is despite his complete mishandling of COVID-19 and unemployment crisis, uh, DeSantis starts as a heavy favorite for re-election. Unlike Rick Scott, who was clumsy in his use of power and ideological in his language, DeSantis has managed to become the heir apparent to uh, the authoritarian Soviet-style wing of the GOP currently led by Donald Trump. And yet appear to many Floridians to be more moderate than Scott. So what do you think is going on there? And, uh, and you know, and I'm thinking back to when uh, Rick Scott was in office and the attempts, the, uh, uh, you, you know, the uh, attempts by the political class, you know, from the funders to, uh, to, rest power from Scott were, were pretty lame, you know, like pink, pink slip brick and all of that you know <laughs> pink bumper <laughs> yes. stickers and stuff we put out ninety thousand bumper stickers well he's still in office he won re-election so maybe that didn't work out so well but 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 like so so what do you think what what do you think's gonna get cooked up now how are we going to uh you know get get desantis you know knock him down a few notches and and possibly save the country from having him as president yeah, so I, I, obviously if he gets reelected, I think he goes right into unless Trump runs runs again. Uh, but let's say Trump doesn't run again, he goes he, he like George W. Bush did when he won re-election in Texas uh, by two to one over Gary Morrow in 1998, goes right into the presidential race and, and, and sweeps through the primaries, uh, except New Hampshire, right? And then obviously we know what happened in South Carolina and and, and, uh, and when John McCain had a chance potentially to become the front runner or the, the, the dirty campaign there, but he, he, he transitions right into the presidential race. So what I think 
has to happen is he has to be redefined. And redefining him involves uh, very clearly tying him to kind of to extreme interest, to anti-worker interest, talking about how, uh, and I, I think maybe the, 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 this pivot that happened since I wrote that article about the, uh, his, his preference for donors with the vaccine. Uh, that's the sort of thing you have to do. You have to paint them as a tool of the bankers, of the financial services class, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the corporations. All of these things that have happened in Florida are for the benefit of Florida corporations and political donors like Publix. The idea that you're going to hit him on being a social conservative, like uh, the Democrats tried to hit Rick Scott on. Oh, well, he's bad on, uh, on abortion and he's bad on guns. Oh, well, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't work in this state. That's been proven. Um, and, and he has a softer image on the environment, although he hasn't been great on the environment. I, I, I've said he'd be better than Freed on the Everglades issue specifically, but he hasn't been great on the environment. But he's taken away the, the red tide issue. He's taken away the algae bloom issue, right? He, he got proactive on some of that stuff, knowing that was a flank where he could lose some Republican votes. Um, and uh, although he has been bad on this Springs issue, and, and uh, you brought the light, Brooke, I give you a lot of credit for this, the Nestle issue in uh-huh. this state. And, and, and uh, uh, DeSantis has been very soft on them. Uh, and, in fact, has been tacitly encouraging them. So uh, those sorts of things have to be used. So you have to weaken his image on the environment, and then you've got to make him look like he's corrupt. Uh, the, the, the usual uh, Democratic uh, boilerplate social issues of uh, uh, of. Uh, uh, of, of, I don't know, gays, guns, and abortion. I mean, I'm sounding, sending it from a pejorative Republican point of view, but you know, that th- those view, those issues isn't, aren't going to work against this guy. In fact, they may make him stronger going into a, uh, a, a, uh, a GOP primary for president. And quite honestly, I don't think he's the kind of guy you want to face in a general election because he's got, uh, one of the things, the, the quote you mentioned, he's got the ability to use and hold power in a way that both Scott and Trump who are, who, are, who are buffoons, right? Mm-hmm. Quite frankly, Rick, Rick Scott is a buffoon. Donald Trump is, an, is a moron. Uh, DeSantis has the ability to consolidate power, threaten people privately, uh, hold them uh, in, his, in, his, uh, uh, in his wing, in his kind of circle, better than those two guys. So you don't want that. You think, oh, we survive a Trump presidency. I, I think a DeSantis presidency would probably be worse, honestly. Well, looking ahead to the leadership, the the Democratic Party leadership in Florida, we got Manny Diaz as the new uh, chair of the Florida Democratic Party. Uh, you know, and I and I can't get that pink slip Rick thing out of my mind. You know that 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 was the uh, 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 premier. Uh, uh, what do you call agitation against uh, Rick Scott? And it was just, it was such a failure. Is it even possible for for the Democratic donor class in Florida to go out and make these uh, arguments? Because, I mean, like, if we need to paint him as a tool of the donor class, really, that can't come from the same old you know, group of consultants and party people and, you know, progressive NGOs. It can't come from them because they're actually f- funded by that donor class. It, it, it's just a, the, it, it's, it's the donor class with the D versus the donor class with the R. Yeah, right. And, and, and this is also the threat of, uh, 
uh, I, I didn't get too deep into this into the article because I, I didn't want to. I, I was talking more about Chris, but I made some subtle uh, jabs at Freed without mentioning her. But but Freed, uh, if you were to nominate Freed, that's a professional lobbyist, so it, it takes those issues completely off the table, right? Um, and the donor class in Florida, it's in their interest because the donor class for Florida Democrats since the weakening of the trial lawyers and and uh, kind of the 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 the, the, the withering away of interest in state races by a lot of uh, other Democrats who contribute to national efforts has, has been reduced to kind of a, a smaller version of the Republican donor class. Yeah, you have the, the unions in there. Okay, so that's the exception. You have SEIU and you have the teachers union. You can even talk about the wisdom of that. But um, putting that aside, you effectively have the same corpora- corporations who donate to Republican campaigns donating to Democratic campaigns, but they're splitting their donations 70-30 or 65-35. So they, that disincentivizes the Democrats from taking those shots, those types of shots at, at, at the Republicans. So you have to cultivate a national donor base of people outside Florida who see an interest in taking down DeSantis. This is all theoretical. I don't know that this is going to happen. I mean, again, if, if you ask me now and you hold a gun to my head, I said, yeah, I, I'll say DeSantis is going to win. The Democrats are going to not define him well. And uh, he'll win by eight to ten points. That, that, uh, he'll win like 55-45, if, if you ask me now. But theoretically, what you could do to weaken him is to get national donors to want to define him and, and, and push, uh, push certain messaging. This, this means uh, got people who want to push that messaging. This doesn't mean Michael Bloomberg coming in, uh, putting millions of dollars in the state, not wanting you to hit corporate issues because that affects him. You know, one of the leading billionaire oligarchs in the country, but running a campaign about guns because that's what Bloomberg likes, right? Guns and 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 big gulps. I, I hate to sound like Tucker Carlson, but you know, big gulps and you know uh, that sort of stuff, sugary sodas. Uh, but he he would. Um, that would play right into DeSantis, by the way. Yeah. If, yeah. if if there would be like a big Bloomberg, like no more big gulps and 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 no more bad guns or whatever, you know, and and, and just it would be it would be like uh, oh, such an DeSantis will say I open I opened a thousand Wawas in the state while I was governor. Uh-huh. You know, you want those Wawas to go away with their forty four ounce uh, cokes. There's soda fountain, and you want the, the big gulps to go. I, yeah. So this this is why you it has to be a certain type of donor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there is a, there, there's, in this last election, in 2020, there was a very interesting kind of flip-flop between Florida and Georgia. Georgia pulled some shit off with getting those two senators elected, and Florida just went... <laughs> Like, like we just went splat there was why was there no work being done or what was the work being done i mean like what is your 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 thoughts on uh on the the, the wreckage that is left from 2020 uh in florida and how are we going to regain our composure for 2022 2024 Florida Democrats have fundamentally misunderstood the Latino vote in this state now for a couple cycles. Uh, it goes back to 2014 when Charlie Crist was running against Rick Scott and the Democrats, uh, the, the national Democrats uh, led by Obama, chose to, to put a priority on protecting Mary Landrew, who lost to Bill Cassidy in Louisiana, putting a, a priority on uh, on uh, 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 David Pryor, David Pryor's son, what was his name, uh, Mark Pryor, who lost Tom Cotton in Arkansas, putting a priority on uh, on, on uh, 
yeah, the late Kay Hagan, now the late Kay Hagan, who of course has Florida ties. She's the niece of, of Governor Childs, uh, who then lost to uh, Tom Tillis in North Carolina. And so what happened is the Obama administration kind of scuttled any attempt at immigration reform. The Latino turnout dipped uh, in 2014. And then in 2016, the Democrats had this residual effect of Trump's perceived racism driving a lot of Latinos towards Hillary Clinton. But the fundamental work that was being done in 2012 in that cycle in the Latino community to understand the cross the cross-cutting cleavages within that community, the different demographic groups, the different sub-national groups, the cultural issues that motivate Latinos beyond uh, these social issues the Democrats like to talk about, uh, identity issues that the Democrats like to talk about. That, that, that work wasn't being done in, 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 in 16 and 18. So then you saw a drop in 18, and now in 20. So in 18, you saw a drop among Cubans and Venezuelans, right, because of this socialist issue. I will concede that, even though I think that it's a, it's a big ruse because I think you, you, you offset those votes in other states, right? In the other 49 states, the fact that, uh, that uh, uh, people are tying the, uh, Joe Biden to, uh, to Fidel Castro makes no difference, okay? In fact, it might help you in some places. People, there are working class people in Montana and Wyoming who might, well, not Wyoming, it's very conservative, but Montana, Colorado, those sorts of places in the West will say, yeah, you know, uh, Arizona, uh, that, 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 that maybe, maybe we like Biden more if, if he's going to give us some of Fidel's type programs. It only hurts you in South Florida. But then in 2020, they, they, they like to talk about this, this, this socialist issue killed them uh, in Florida. But yet, if you look closely at the precinct data, it looks like the Democrats had a major problem, a major erosion of support among Colombian Americans and uh, Puerto Ricans and Dominican Americans as well, and Honduran Americans, okay? So it's not the natural, oh, well, anti-Maduro, anti-Castro, anti-Hugo Chavez thing. They have uh, not been able to communicate properly on, uh, uh, on cultural issues, and by using identity as the sole driver, um, and I think a lot of that is based around the polling they've done among Mexican Americans in California and the perceptions they take, they bring from California to Florida. Um, they made a number of mistakes. So uh, now that you have a, a record number, uh, and by the way, there was an erosion of Asian-American support for, for, for the Democrats also this time. All That's right. not a really really large voting block in the state, but I, I harken back to an era when I remember the majority of Asian-Americans in this country were Republicans. Uh-huh. So I think it very easily could, and the few uh, Asian-Americans you had from the mainland who were elected to Congress, tended to be Republicans. Obviously, you had uh, uh, the, the two Democratic senators who, uh, from Hawaii, but uh, mainland uh, Asian-Americans tended to be Republicans. Uh, there were a few Democrats here and there, but there is, there is a, a, uh, a, a trend towards that. You saw the Republicans in California run Latino and Asian-American candidates and flip. I, I, I said they flipped four Democratic U.S. House seats, congressional seats. All four of those seats were flipped by either Asian-Americans or Latino-Americans that they ran. So you see the Republicans are now turning the identity thing against the Democrats. Um, the Democrats have appealed to these people simply on identity, and the Republicans are saying, okay, we have cultural issues and things that matter to your community uh, that might uh, – and, and, and truthfully, I will admit some of it is very sinister stuff. Some of it is racism. Some of it is, hey, you don't want these illegal immigrants. You came in legally. I, I concede that, but um, which is why maybe Biden pushing for amnesty right away has been 
even more damaging with some of those communities. But look, I support Biden pushing for amnesty as an ideological thing, but I'm just saying from a political standpoint, it may not. There may be a boomerang effect, which the Democrats, again, are not anticipating. Um, But what they've done, what they did in California is they began to peel away um, some of these ethnic voters based on cultural issues and issues specific to those communities. The Democrats have viewed these minority communities on identity, and therefore they have viewed them as a monolith. And that affected the Democrats in Florida in 2020. So unless they get down and do the hard work and try and understand the actually understand the voters, uh, they are not going to be able to uh, to reverse this. I'm sorry in this state. And I think there was a big lie. I kind of uh, talk about this in the Christ article. I think there was a big lie that Democrats were pushing as people like you and I, Brooke, warned in 2017, um, coming out of the 2016 election in 2017 and early 2018. The demographic shifts we saw in Florida were a demographic shift towards the Republicans. Right. right. Western small town Republicans from Ohio and Minnesota and Illinois moving into um, exurban uh, areas around uh, around the Tampa Bay and Jacksonville areas and speci- uh, specifically. And I know like there are a bunch of Democrats who got angry at me who said when you when I published the, the metropolitan areas and how they went. Oh, well, Jacksonville went Democratic. No, Duval County went Democratic. There was a lot of people who moved into Clay and St. John's uh, in the and even Nassau now in the last uh four to six years who are who are taking those places even further to the right. But there was this sh- very clear shift in demographics you and I and some other people saw. The Florida Democrats and the NGOs associated with the Florida Democratic Party, in order to counter that and keep the donors donor class interested, was saying, well, you know what? That's not true. We have all these Puerto Ricans who are moving to the state. We have all of these um, his- Latinos and they are already citizens because they're Puerto Ricans. There's now a, a plus couple hundred thousand Democratic advantage over where we were in 2016. Well, that proved to be a big lie. OK, and then they told the lie again in 2020. And it's more a lie to keep the donor class and the media interested in Florida. So I think that there needs to be some exposure to this because they've effectively lied, raising the expectations, put, you know, uh, raise money, which pays all these consultants. And um the state has trended more Republicans since 2016 than any state in the country. Well, and, you know, on that note, you know, a year ago, just about a year ago, uh, Bernie Sanders won a, a an astonishing victory in, in Nevada with yep. 53, 54% of the uh, Latino voters. And there is a story that needs to be told about how uh, Bernie Sanders was able to reach those Latino voters, not only in, in Nevada, but in uh, in Iowa and in every state. They paid a lot of attention on the ground, like real honest to goodness on the ground uh, at work, whereas... Yeah, uh, the the rest of the, the the party, Bloomberg is a really good example. Would just uh, you know kind of airdrop uh, millions and millions of of television ads and you know call it a day like that. That was all they they were interested in doing, and so it it just strikes me as as pretty obvious that 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 there is a, a, an intentional. 
ignoring of this phenomenal success of Bernie Sanders purely because it was Bernie Sanders, you know, and the and and the party is so freaking uh, terrified of, you know, doing anything basically for for workers. I mean, we just going back to the whole fifteen dollar minimum wage thing, like there has to be a place in in policy for working people or else we're going to continue to lose uh by margins in in states like florida it will will we'll never get you know texas texas will just be like a uh, some kind of fever dream or whatever it's just not going to happen no the we can't win with bankers uh uh campaigning to other bankers because that's not who the voters are no absolutely right um and and i think that the the thing that we learned from bernie sanders success in nevada also was that there were a lot of uh people who who understand the latino community who said look uh Maybe maybe we preferred Biden as a nominee, or would have preferred Bloomberg or Buttigieg or whoever Klobuchar, whoever they were for uh, Warren, etc. But Sanders actually got the pulse of that community. He understood the economic anxiety issues, and he also uh, understood that he could he could have his own position on cultural issues, which might appeal to some younger Latinos, but would not offend. He wasn't emphasizing those issues to where it would offend. Uh, older Latino voters. He would be going right to them on the pocketbook issues. This is so important because people say, well, uh, Sanders is as liberal, obviously on guns he hasn't been, but on the other stuff, he's as far left as as, as all these uh, uh, neoliberals that you complain about with identity, but they mm-hmm. run exclusively on that, whereas he was talking about economic issues and he could get them, even if they were more conservative on abortion or guns, or in uh, guns they might be comfortable with them actually, but abortion, guns, all that stuff, to to, 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 to go with him. Yeah, well, it it just seems like there's a there's a dysfunctionality where, you know, voters are like, hey, this is pretty easy. We want some change and we want uh, to live better lives. And that generally means that generally means money that that means support. support my economic interest you know we're we're getting killed out here especially when you're talking about younger people with like a a lot of student debt you know who are looking at the prospects of never being able to own a house or start a family and 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 they really need some some economic help and what the party does is like oh here's a here's an identity issue there you go have a have a, a, a some some representation here's a, a you know a person of color who will you know be sure to start some wars or you know relax regulation uh on wall street and we're so tired of it we've become apathetic i think in a way i think that 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 could be a really uh uh big problem in 2022 uh for down ticket people if if people are just turned off by inaction yeah no and i think i think uh we need to get back to where we have a consultant class and people making decisions in the party who have a bias toward action mm-hmm. i mean one thing i i'll say is uh for all my critiques of uh, 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 of of the clinton people um i think that that the bagalas and the carvels of the world had a bias towards action they understood you had to deliver something once you were in office. Now, maybe the remedies weren't always what we would prefer, but there was this, this emphasis on action. 
getting back to, the, and this is a nice place to talk, uh, tie a bow on the conversation, Brooke, getting back to the beginning, I think Biden has wanted to go big or go home, but there are other forces in the Democratic Party maybe influencing him now, certainly that would influence the vice president, that say, well, let's not actually take action because we need to have these issues and the identity stuff and all of this stuff to complain about to run on in 2022. So the idea that uh, the Democrats could have passed a minimum wage uh, increase without a single Republican vote would actually be the right thing to run on in 2022. But the Democrats are now in this in such a defensive, whiny posture that they've decided it's better to run in 2022 on saying, hey, we'll raise the minimum wage uh, even, and they won't. So they keep preserve the issue which is the wrong thing to do. And uh, again, uh, Biden wanted to avoid 2022 being like 2010. Um, he got off to a good start with that the first two months or first month and a half, but then uh, that took a major step back on, on uh, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday of this week. You're right. And, and I think that is a really good place to put a bow on things because uh, it, it brings everything full circle. And, uh, and, you know, it's just really funny because in this whole conversation, the, the, the person who is coming out, uh, appearing, you know, uh, smelling like a rose, you might say, is, uh, Nancy Pelosi. You know, she seems to be the one who was able to, to keep the Democrats together. And it, it just seems like the executive branch and the, and the Senate, you know, the, the, the higher up the elite ladder you go, that's where things are falling apart. Uh, so I think it's going to be interesting. I think that, I think that 2022, you are going to see, uh, a lot of people. I think there's going to be like a payoff with, uh, uh, younger candidates running for office and people who are, you know, just getting, getting up and doing something. Uh, and, and, you know, right now the squad stands at six people. I think that, you know, in another cycle or two, we're going to see, you know, 12 or 14 people. You know, that's, I, I think that's, that's, uh, it's bound to happen just because, you know, people are getting freaking old. They're getting ready to, I mean, look at Diane Feinstein. Yeah, she's like, she's got to, she's got to retire at some point. I mean, yeah, it was like Leahy also. I mean, I've loved Pat Leahy. He's been a good liberal all these years, but uh, I mean, I watched him in an impeachment trial. I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, I hope he makes it through the trial. Right, right. Uh, and they have a Republican governor. Let's not forget that this, this was a complication in Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, both of whom wanted to be appointed to the cabinet. You know, this is the thing. The Democrats have done so badly at the state level that you have these very liberal states that give Democrats huge margins in presidential elections like Maryland and Massachusetts and Vermont that are governed by Republicans and popular Republicans. In fact, Charlie Baker in Massachusetts, the most popular governor in the country. Uh, and uh, if Elizabeth Warren had been appointed to the uh, uh, cabinet, then he would have replaced her with a, uh, uh, with a Republican. So that, uh, I mean, it's tough to find a Republican in Massachusetts these days, but I'm sure he would have found one. So that, that's the, uh, that's that's the difficulty, and and I'm thinking about Leahy. What happens if Leahy passes away? Uh, a Republican be mm -hmm. uh, appointed to replace him. So I think you're you're seeing some younger blood. Uh, it, it happens in the House quicker than in the Senate. Yep. Uh, Pelosi, I think, in order to hold on to her leadership, has has effectively, uh, in spite of her public uh, 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 shots at, at at AOC and the squad, I, I think very privately there's been some sort of deal, uh, as we see uh, that 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 has uh, given. 
uh, them a larger, larger voice in the caucus and, and, a, and a larger. Uh, and, and this is the thing that I think is really clear. Uh, these last couple months, uh, previous to when AOC would say things that people, the media would claim was marginal, Pelosi would push back on it publicly. Since January, uh, AOC has probably been in the media as much, if not more, than before. Pelosi has not pushed back on her at all. If anything, mm-hmm. I think she's tacitly encouraging her. Because mm-hmm. um, maybe Pelosi, too, is frustrated with the Senate and, and is uh, uh, thinking, okay, well, I, I can keep my powder dry and let, let, let's deploy the squad against uh, these Democratic senator, senators. Which, if I'm Kristen Cinema, I'm really scared now. Because I think that they're going to mount a major effort in Arizona to discredit her um, and uh, and more power to them when they do that. Yeah, she's already discredited herself. I mean, that that little curtsy and the thumbs down that is going to be on quite a few ads in uh, in the next cycle. Uh, I am sure it's going to appear in in ads, not even in a Senate race. I mean, that is just an iconic image uh, that, that came out of this week and quite a surprise. And uh, well, thank you so much, Cardick for joining us i mean it it means a lot and we uh we really get down into the into the nitty-gritty when whenever you come by to to talk and i so appreciate it thank you all right guys look for carter krishnoyer on twitter at k kkfla 737 or carter krishnoyer and uh also Go check out thefloridasqueeze.com, and I will put a link to the In Defense of Charlie Crest article in the show notes. All right. And we'll be right back with Chris Richards here in a moment. All right, so we are welcoming Chris Richards, the eclectic radical on Twitter and also has a new YouTube channel. I wanted to bring Chris on to talk about uh, political discourse uh, because I've noticed that his take is uh, a little bit different than than many. He's uh, he's kind of an information sharer, and I think that's really cool and important. But uh, let's hear him talk about it. I see Twitter as a teaching tool. And well, I know that there's sort of an echo chamber that comes out and it feels like my reach has been contracting lately, even though my follows go up. I, I, I really want to get stuff out there to make people think about stuff that maybe they don't normally think about. Right. And if you get people um, and and I've been that person as a younger person, you know, where you thought you had things totally figured out and, you know, what you know, 30 something or someone who's like 25 and just out of school that we all thought we had it all figured out. And then along comes this one thing and, and you figure out you were wrong and then you have to start re-examining. You have to backtrack and go, okay, why was, why was that wrong? What else am I wrong about? No. And that's, 
that's a really good approach to life that I wish more people shared right now. Yeah, you know, something I share a lot with people is that back in the 90s, I was your basic garden variety, what we would call now shitlib, which I take to be, you know, just this uh, defend the party uh at all costs. And I'm a totally different person now. Uh, I had to be deprogrammed. It was not pretty. Uh, no, seriously. Uh, it was, uh, it was difficult. And I think I alienated people and I don't ever want to be that person ever again, because I don't think it's good for me. And I definitely don't think it's good for the struggle writ large. So I voted, this is just to show you how much people change, because you're not the only one. In 1996, yes, I'm getting my years right. In 1996, I voted in the Republican primary for Richard Luger. Oh, wow. So, so yeah, I know what you mean by learning things you didn't know about and and somehow that can change a lot and that can change a lot as you absorb more of that information and really understand what it means and most people aren't confronted with it on a daily basis well and one thing that i'm not confronted with on a daily basis that i wanted to get your input on to help me understand is uh what what is libertarian socialism because i see this phrase uh kicked around a lot but I don't feel like I have a really good grasp of what it means. It just seems like if you're a socialist, why wouldn't you be libertarian in a civil rights sense? Because that, that, that's, that's my reading of, of the libertarian there is that that applies to civil rights rather than economics. Otherwise, we would have an oxymoron in the phraseology of libertarian socialism. Well, no, you're, you're right. I mean, libertarian socialism is really just socialism. And, and I'm going to make the Karl Marx fans mad here, but libertarian socialism predates our more authoritarian ideas of Marxist-Leninism or, or orthodox or classical Marxism. Um, there were, there were anarchists writing before Marx, there were anarchists arguing with Marx at the at the same time that that, that, that Marx was was trying to to organize the first international. And really the that that libertarian socialism is you've heard of, of, of Emma Goldman or, or Mikhail Bakunin or Peter Kropotkin or Murray Bookchin, we're just talking about anarchists. Um, I think Chomsky was the first person to call himself a libertarian socialist instead of an anarchist. That's interesting. That is really interesting. I never knew that. And, and Chomsky would use libertarian socialism to to try to differentiate himself from the Marxist and anarchists that everybody everybody thought about, but it's really just another way of saying the same thing, which is that people should be free in as much as, as anyone living in a society can be free and that life should be fair. 
to the degree that life can be fair. And, and that's really all there is to it. Yeah, and it seems like the the converse or the inverse of that is if you're not libertarian in your socialism, then you're kind of authoritarian in your socialism. When And that's not good either. Well, I mean, people who call themselves libertarian socialists are definitely implying that the majority of socialists aren't libertarian. If I had to guess, knowing that, that Chomsky is a linguist and cares what words mean, I would have to assume that he deliberately chose libertarian socialism in order to sort of backhand all the other socialists out there and to make a statement that he wasn't pro-communist or pro-USSR. Well, and let's take that a quarter of a turn further, because uh, a lot of the work that we do, especially during the pandemic, is is online, but uh, just generally, because being online gives us the ability to uh, do things much more efficiently, talk to each other much more efficiently, find our, uh, find our tribe uh, more easily. And I know that there is a lot of shade thrown on people who, uh, you know, primarily do their thinking and their working online. So what are, what are your thoughts about that? How, because I feel like we're, that it's a unique time where we have the ability to talk to people about very specific subjects that we could only dream of uh, 20, 30 years ago. And so I, I feel like that's kind of like a superpower. Um, but there's a lot of people who like to throw shade on, uh, you know, doing discourse online or, you know, online organizing and stuff like that. No, and, and that's absolutely true. And Twitter is the equivalent of the public square where you would see the, the guy from the labor union and the guy from the Chamber of Commerce debate every week back in the days when you had when people set up Chautauqua tents in the the public square on Saturdays yeah or the forum the the old you know the old Greek forum is is one of the the symbols I keep in my head you know where people are actually come to the same place to exchange ideas and that's really what they're they're there to do primarily and, and exchanging those ideas, I mean, so, well, let's take teaching. Someone in a classroom can reach everybody in the classroom with a lesson. And somebody with a, a streamed class or a class on TV can see you every, everyone who watches with a lesson. But in theory... If we really have the kind of internet access and social media access around the world that everyone should have, then in theory, you can teach everybody who wants to learn something using social media. Now, obviously, it doesn't really work like that, but it could and it should. People come to Twitter to... to uh to work things out, to engage in 
to engage in new ideas or maybe to hash out old ideas. And I, th- I just find that really fascinating. But lately, there seems to be, to me, what, what I'm seeing a lot of is a, a really odd uh, organized effort to otherize uh, certain leftists from other leftists. And I have a and fracture the left to cleave some leftists away from other leftists. What you have to remember is that the the American left goes back a long way, but the current version of the American left goes back to about 1973. Um, prior to 1972, you had the Socialist Party of America, which back in the day was Eugene Debs' party. It was A. Philip, a. Philip Randolph's uh, party. It was the party through the Progressive Era and the, the Depression New Deal Era that really pushed Democrats or Republicans in office to do the sort of things that people wanted them to do. And they did it by running against them and by running against the Republicans. And they had people elected in some places. I mean, there weren't lots and lots of socialists in Congress, but there were socialist administrations in a lot of Midwestern cities. They called themselves the sewer socialists, and they were, and they built their careers on public transportation and indoor plumbing for everybody in town instead of just the rich people. And that made a huge difference. A lot of a lot of what we think of as the normal duties of a city government that city governments are no longer doing the way we think they should come from that idea of, of socialism as giving the conveniences of modern life to everyone and not just the rich people. Um, and that went away in 1972. 1972 was when the Socialist Party of America changed their name to Social Democrats US USA. And stopped competing with the Democrats and instead decided that they were going to fully back McGovern in the nineteen seventy two election. But there was an argument between the membership about foreign policy, uh, Social Democrats USA believed that, 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 that it, we needed to have a negotiated peace to the Vietnam War and we needed to go through the process. And as a result, it was kind of pro-Nixon at a time when people calling themselves Social Democrats shouldn't have been. And so... The people who were opposed to the Vietnam War in the former Socialist Party broke away from Socialist Democrats U.S. Social Democrats USA and formed the Democratic Socialists of America. That's our DSA today, and they were funded and, and they were fundamentally part of a group that was already committed to working with George McGovern and not offering an alternative to his left at the time. So you have this 
you have this idea that you can work with the left wing of the Democratic Party and make them more socialist without having to confront the establishment or offend anyone. And it's just wrong. It doesn't work. It hasn't worked. Um, the, the big success for the Democratic Socialists of America, I'm sorry, AOC fans, <laughs> the big success for the Democratic Socialists of America was in Carter's first term, first midterm, 1978, when uh, they got the majority of the new incoming Democratic Congress people to endorse what was called the Democratic Agenda, which was essentially the the Teddy Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, Bernie Sanders platform. It, it wouldn't have anything that really surprised you. They got the, they got most of the Democrats newly elected in Congress to agree to Bernie Sanders platform in 1978. At which point, Jimmy Carter, who had agreed to it in 1976, promptly backed out of it once it had a chance of passing. And that was the big DSA success in 1978. Nothing they've done since has matched that. Sorry, AOC fans. Wow, that and, that really uh, flushes things out. I mean, that that history is so recent; it's it's barely history, but the, people don't know about it. No, a lot of people in the DSA don't know about it. I wonder sometimes how many people in the DSA on the argue with people on Twitter level know who Michael Harrington or Bayard Rustin or Max Schachtman are, who are the people who made the decisions that put the the left, the left in America where it is right now. And that speaks ex- ex- precisely to what I had mentioned before about the way that there's this fracturing on the left. And one of the... Uh, um, points of pressure is dsa it seems yeah. like it, it seems like dsa national as opposed to dsa locals i know that the locals are are very different and they're run differently than the national uh, they do some there's good a stuff. lot of variation from from place to place um you, the, the the co-chair of the champagne urbana dsa is leading an activist group uh, to protest utility shutoffs that includes both Democrats and members of the PSL. So there's great activism going on through the DSA. Uh, There's also, at the national level, a a lot of very timid politics. And I understand the timidity, but you can't achieve radical goals with conservative politics, and I mean small C conservative by you know the literal conservative not taking risks. And people see the national DSA as the source of don't take risks. Um, they see some of the things that the squad has been doing after their 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 reelection or during the the Biden versus Trump campaign. And they say, well, this isn't what I voted for. And so at the same time, there's this very aggressive movement to defend politicians from criticism right now among their fans. 
And, you know, people used to joke, or not so much joke, but they used to, you know, when someone called Bernie a cult, they would, well, no, no, you're the ones who are defending politicians who, who, who are so much more problematic than Bernie. But when you look at it now, you're seeing the same kind of uncritical, unreflexive defense of the squad that you saw of Democrats other than Bernie. The affective, the uh, emotive uh, uh, sense that AOC needs to be protected, um, I think is getting its wires crossed with what we need from uh, our lawmakers. Yeah, so Uh it's okay to like AOC as a person and and appreciate that she's there. Uh, However, uh, that that can't stand in the way of of everyone who's depending on her to actually be a leader for all of these um, issues and 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 programs that we need instituted. Now, I do think that there is one point that was made for a little while, but when I actually started doing it, people didn't really pay much attention and, 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 and didn't really follow through on what they were saying. But there is a legitimate argument that there was too much criticism of AOC and not enough criticism of progressives in Congress in general, which I tried to make up for mm-hmm. by pointing out the fact that I'm sorry, I don't care if you don't expect to win the challenge. But when you have figures like Ro Kanner and Pramila Jayapal in the Progressive Caucus, or Barbara Lee, it is unforgivable that one of those three people was not immediately ready to challenge Nancy Pelosi in 2020, if only to get concessions from her. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, think, I think Roe and Pramila deserve their share of criticism and Barbara Lee for not not being ready to use what even centrists were saying was a serious increase in progressive power because of the change in house numbers. So I I don't understand how you can understand how you can gain that kind of power and then say to yourself, I'm not going to use it for anything. Barbara Lee actually tweeted out just a little while ago. uh, She tweets out, what would monthly survival checks mean to you and your family? And it would mean a lot, but it also seems kind of cruel in a way, because no one's working for that. So, like, yeah, that's what There's we've been telling you. So, there are people working for that. There is a bill. But this is why I'm saying what I'm saying about Pelosi. There is a bill co-sponsored by Ro Khanna and Tim Ryan. So, not Ro Khanna and Barbara Lee. Not Ro Khanna and AOC. Ro Khanna and Tim Ryan. You're covering both wings of the Democratic Party with the co-sponsors to pay everybody $2,000 a month. Now, there are some restrictions and a little bit of means testing that I don't like, 
but it would still pay most of the people who got uh, who got checks two thousand dollars a month until the the COVID and economic crisis are over. The only reason that it has not come out of committee is Nancy Pelosi has not allowed it to come out of committee to come to a floor vote. Ah, uh, okay. So, if you know that, if you know that Tim Ryan, who is in good with the group that is challenging Pelosi from her rights, is co-sponsoring an emergency UBI bill with Rokana. Even doesn't even backing the right wing challenge to Pelosi seem like it's suddenly a better option than keeping Pelosi there? Because at least someone in Tim Ryan's faction might bring Tim Ryan and Rokana's bill to the floor, since it has Tim Ryan's name on it. And that's the really that's the really frustrating part of it. People, well, you'll just get someone worse than Pelosi. First, it's a hard sell to me to really convince me that the people who claim to be to Pelosi's right are really that much to Pelosi's right. It's a matter of it, it, it's a matter of, of of outlook and and rhetoric rather than real policy differences. It's aesthetics. Exactly. And second, even if you, if you, if the Progressive Caucus actually stopped Nancy Pelosi from being elected as Speaker, the next Speaker would be beholden to them. That's a big part of how politics works. That makes a difference. For sure. And, and, you know, it's, it's all of this, it's all of this uh, inaction and, and, and not having a, a, a reasonable and rational uh, approach to Nancy Pelosi's um, reluctance to actually make law i mean she's a lawmaker she's the speaker of the house she should be up there making law and it seems like what she's really good at is keeping bills off the floor yes and and unless unless they come by they unless they are brought by the pressure group that that control that that also shares donors with her. I mean, Josh Gottheimer has no problem uh, getting his priorities into bills. He's the he and he's the one who went to to Nancy Pelosi and said, "We really got to fund ICE. We got to fund ICE in this budget," and she did. She when has she shown that kind of? that kind of uh, attention to a, a progressive. Never. <laughs> I'll just say it, never. Or I'll say this. And that's where we are. Yeah. But, but that's what we have. So the people who are convinced that we have to make change using the Democratic Party 
kind of have to defend Biden and Pelosi, even though they don't want to. And it, it causes problems. It makes people less reliable, even if you agree with them 90% of the time. And that's why you see all these really, really vicious feuds between people who are on exactly the same side. And, and, uh, and all of a sudden, people who, who were, were supposed to be comrades throwing the worst kinds of insults at each other because there's this whole notion there's this whole notion that well the Democrats are all there is and if you you advocate for anything else than than pushing the Democrats left you're you're advocating for something impossible well the last time the Democrats were significantly pushed left in the 60s there was still a separate socialist party running separate candidates well, and these are the same people who resist any sort of, of of pushing left, you know. So so the things that have been on the table in terms of pushing people left are um, immigration policy, uh, which we know from the Obama administration that, you know, that the, the legacy of uh, Obama and Biden has been uh, to put these people in cages, you know. There was an announcement even before he was inaugurated from Susan Rice, saying they didn't foresee any short-term immigration policy changes, which basically meant until further notice, expect the Trump immigration policy from Biden. Now, they did do some things. They undid executive orders and such, the Muslim ban, and some of the more egregious executive orders related to the border. But they did not actually change the policy. They're not doing anything more any any differently. They reopened camps that had closed down under the Trump administration because they foresee needing them again. They actually said, "Well, we don't want more people to come because we're not locking people up anymore." Wow! <laughs> wow! Well, and- I don't think they meant about that way, but that's what they ended up saying. We don't want an increase in crossings because we change our policy. And another example of this would be uh, go out and vote for these two uh, senators in Georgia so that you get $2,000 checks, and then now all of a sudden that's just uh, $1,400, and even now who knows if we're ever going to get them. And they're wholly inadequate for doing what they're supposed to do, which is protect us from the pandemic by providing economic security. Well, it's going to happen sometime in March or April, but we're going to be, we're, we may tighten the means testing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it, 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 it's a ridiculous game. Someone, someone from status two said to someone on Twitter, it's like, are you kidding Biden's so much better than Trump. I realize he's not great, but he's so much better than Trump. And I had to quote tweet that. Okay, how? The, the, the border policy hasn't changed, and we're more we might and we we might be more likely to have a war. We're not getting survival checks. How is he better? 
And that is a, a, a very common uh, uh, thing that I'm seeing people talk about because uh, it's it's been a month in office and you, you know we we have this kind of artificial 100 days because of fdr's oh. one 100 days <clears throat> and it's so not totally artificial there is a serious argument to be made that the first 100 days of the presidency are your only time to get anything done before you're either campaigning for congress people or running for re-election yourself right right Uh, stand corrected. And, and and so I'm looking at a tweet right now. Biden has been worse than Trump, point blank, period. He lied about $2,000 stimulus checks. Uh, he's keeping kids in cages. He's war hawking in Haiti, drone striking mm-hmm. Somalia, war signaling with Venezuela. And we don't we, we still don't have a covid plan. And there's now mishandling of what's going on in texas a friend of mine earlier today said uh well how long did it take george w bush to declare a state of emergency and uh and 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 the twitter trolls are calling people who are pointing that out liars point blank Uh uh-huh and it's it's public information it's it's like (laughs) a a stated a state of emergency was only just recognized at the federal level. And mm-hmm. these people have been suffering now for almost a week, if not more. Almost. Well, no, almost pretty much a week. Pretty much a week. It was on Monday that the, it was on Tuesday when the power outages were reported after the storm. Yeah. And then Tuesday and Wednesday, even here in Oregon, my job was shut down. Yeah, so about a week. Yeah, so it started February the 13th, which is seven days ago. That's a week. A week. (laughs) So it it took a week for Biden to get around to a a state of emergency. And, And you have, of course, the state government in texas doing what they do best which is you know breaking government and making sure it can't help people and meanwhile the people who are caught in the in, in the crossfire here are you know just regular folks who are freezing to death we're not even going to know what the death count is of all of these people for it could be weeks or months until all of this oh, is dug not- out but we do know that we do know that uh, that a kid has died of hypothermia already. Mm-hmm. At least one child. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean these these stories as they come out are just going. Uh, it's going to be heartbreak on top of heartbreak. This sort of thing. I mean, and this sort of thing is the sort of thing that people pretend never happens here. Mm-hmm. Which is what makes me so mad. If this sort of thing had happened in uh, Belarus or in Venezuela, it, we would be using that as as an excuse for regime change. Well, if you remember how remember how they were saying all the time how badly China was handling the co- the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. 
And then they were talking about how great Andrew Cuomo was handling. <laughs> well, who actually appears to have a better objective record on handling the coronavirus now? The, the state of Wuhan or the, I mean, the city of Wuhan or the city of New York? Andrew Cuomo's handling of, of COVID in New York is, if we were talking about it publicly, you know, if, if the country were having an honest discussion about this and it wasn't just, you, you know, his brother. Exactly, exactly. It, it, if it wasn't, if it wasn't just his brother interviewing him on, on CNN and getting these total stupid softball, uh, uh, interviews he would have to answer for granting immunity to the nursing homes that that uh, allowed people to die and he would have to answer for all of his policies that have made it so much more dangerous for people to work and live in new york uh it's it's a complete disaster and you still have i'm 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 going to 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 to, to plug myself here mm-hmm. It's on my Patreon. It's on my YouTube channel. Everyone who has not seen it yet should see the episode with Ron Kim. It's very relevant right now. Tell us about Ron Kim. He's the state senator from New York. He's a, he's a, state, he's a state assemblyman from Queens. He is actually the, the state assemblyman of uh of lauren ashcraft who ran for congress uh he's aoc's state rep (laughs) (laughs) uh he was the first person to be anti-amazon in new york city even before uh jessica ramos and julia salazar and aoc jumped on uh He's really the person who's responsible for it being an issue that everybody felt they needed to be to jump onto. Uh, he's been fighting Cuomo in the legislature for as long as he's been in the state assembly, and he's the guy who's been going on uh, the cable the cable news round lately to talk about how Cuomo threatened him for not wanting to change his statement to match Cuomo's official story about people dying in nursing homes. Wow. And and so he is out there. I, I, I've seen this this clip of of him. Uh, 29 people have died at one of our nursing homes from COVID-19 and we still don't have answers. He's standing outside of this nursing home saying, I want to know what's going on inside of there. People's yeah. families don't know and we aren't getting any information. And it's horrifying. And he's not somebody who stops working on this stuff or stops talking on this stuff between election cycles either. I mean, it's it's 2020, and and he's talking about he's still talking about this stuff. And it looks like there is a, a, a organized effort to um, to paint him as a liar about this. And that's basically the, that's just what the powers, the, the state powers, and Florida is a lot like New York with, in terms of the way that the state is, is run. Uh, it, they, they circle the wagons, and it doesn't even matter which party they're in. Cuomo is very good at, at 
protecting Republicans and and vice versa? Well, I think people are going to be less less inclined to protect someone who who killed their members of their family. Right. Um, see, Ron's uncle died of COVID in a nursing home. Uh, my friend, my friend Dominique, who uh, lives in New York City, people should follow her, a canary filmmaker. She's great. But her father died of COVID. He wasn't in a nursing home, but her mother works in a nursing home, caught COVID from her father, and was paid by her employers to go into work with COVID, endangering their residents. And this is what Cuomo offered them blanket liability shield for, deliberately endangering their, endangering their residents, knowingly endangering their residents. It's just appalling. It's it's absolutely. And if that were a Republican governor, uh, imagine how how different. And and it's not just that he's a Democrat. It's it's that the uh, that the media embraced him and that he became this overnight success. Because I I mean this is a very low bar because he was uh, talking about COVID in a way that was. uh, sounding the alarm during a time when the Trump administration refused to do that. Was denying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but talking about it and not doing anything about it isn't any better, and that's what Democrats need to recognize. And and that takes us back to your to, to the argument online we were talking about. We've got people for whom talking about the right stuff is enough. And we've got people who really want to see things change. And the people for whom talking about the right stuff is enough feel really threatened by the people who really want to see things change. And the people who really want to see things change feel betrayed with some justification by the the people who think talking about things is enough. And I want to thank the eclectic radical. Uh, Chris Richards, I I will put his information again in the show notes. Check out his new channel on YouTube. He's, uh, you know, there's some hosting some really interesting conversations. And let's remember, you know, we are living in a time where there is a, a dearth of good independent media. So these conversations are not happening anywhere else. It's super cool that we are have the ability to host these conversations ourselves and there's access to the tools and the resources to be able to do that. So let's take advantage of that. Check out, you know, if you see somebody who is a good follow on Twitter and they're doing a side media project, do check that out and give them a chance, you know, throw some uh, uh, messages down in their comment section and, you know, become a part of the the situation, become a part of the conversation. Because becoming a part of the conversation is the first step to becoming organized into doing the work, right? The conversation is part of the work. Uh, So, well, that is it for me for this part two. And we will see you guys again next week when we do this one more time again. But then we'll do it another time after that. 
but for now it'll just be a next time next week so tune in then and we'll have more not this much more this was a lot but we'll have more